And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to hang out at this morning. And uh, isn't it good to be able to come together as God's church and be reminded that uh, uh, no matter where we are in life, no matter where our society is, no matter our sins, no matter our sufferings, uh, Christ is worthy and He's worthy of our worship. Um, so I was blessed by being able to uh, sing that to the Lord together as we reminded each other of that in melody. Uh, but Romans 13 is, is where we are going to camp out at, and, um, and if you've been following along uh, over the last several, um, or over the last couple of months really, we've been working through various doctrines in the Bible, and, uh, and we have been looking to the Scripture uh, and uh, in seeing these doctrines in the Bible, and then we've been looking at our confession, the 1689 uh, Confession of Faith, to see uh, how it is that these doctrines have been summarized for many, many years. And this morning, what we are going to be looking at is chapter 4 um, of the confession, uh, but I'm going to preach from Romans chapter 13, and many of us will know that is the chapter in which the Apostle Paul speaks uh, to the Roman church and uh, consequently to us about uh, our, how we should view uh, the government and, uh, and as we will see how the government should view itself. And so I'm going to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. I'm going to pray and then uh, we are just going to work uh, verse by verse through this passage of Scripture together um, this morning. So the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed revenue, to whom revenue is owed respect, To whom respect is owed, honor. To whom honor is owed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that again, we can see it, Lord. We have so many copies of it, God. We know that it has been kept pure in all ages by your spirit who inspired these men to write it. God, it's trustworthy. It's true, Lord. It's sufficient. And Lord, help us by your Spirit to take a passage like this in a culture like the one that we live in 
and apply it in a way that honors you. Help us to be people that, above all things, seek to honor you. And we love you, the Lord of all things. And we pray this in your name alone, in the name of Christ. Amen. So it's, it's been fitting some of the, the songs that we've sang this morning, and, uh, and even Daniel's prayer struck me that, that we are singing to the Lord who is over all. And, uh, and that is one of the things that I want us to see and kind of hold in our head, if you will, as we work through this passage together. But if you know anything about uh, the context of the book of Romans, you would know that the Apostle Paul is writing during the peak, if you will, of the Roman Empire where emperors um, were often uh, deified. And and not only were they deified in this culture and in this context, but um, they were expected uh, or they expected to be worshipped. It it was a time of hereditary rule, right? Your right to rule was familial, right? We see figures such as Augustus, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian among the ranks of of those who demanded um, to to be worshipped, to be deified. They were the ones who, uh, through their own family, through their own lineage, uh, received the the right, if you will, to to rule. And some of you may recognize some of the names that, that I just listed because of their immense persecution um, that, that, that they reaped on the early church, the first century church. They saw the lordship of Jesus Christ and, uh, and his people's commitment to his lordship um, as, as a, uh, a threat to their power, as a threat to uh, their way of life. So they persecuted believers, and particularly Nero uh, and Domitian, if you're familiar with uh, the history there. Uh, these emperors, they, they, like I said, they, they weren't elected. They, they didn't have any term limits. And the things that these men did to keep power, they, it, was, it was wicked and it was detestable. In the Roman Empire, the, the emperors, they exhibited Im, uh, immense power and they weren't governed by any sort of constitution and they weren't held accountable or didn't, uh, you know, the systems weren't even set up for them to be held accountable by the people that they govern. This is the, the environment in which the Apostle Paul is ministering in when he wrote to the Roman church. Right? And if you're discouraged about modern events in our society, know that Christ's church flourished even in this environment. Right? That's the reason why we're all sitting here today. Right? As things get darker, the, the light of Christ shines brighter. There, there's, there's clarity uh, around uh, even God's people and their commitment to Christ. And, and in the midst of such wickedness, we see Paul give a, a commendation to the church on how to view governing figures and how to interact with them, their obligations toward them. And at first glance, we may not see this, but some of what Paul says in context is is quite frankly uh, provocative, but 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 we got to see and we got to hold on our heads as we go through this that the words of Paul flow 
from a commitment to Christ, who's Lord in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All right, so this morning we're going to look at Paul's instructions, and as we do, we need to be asking ourselves a very important question. And that question is, how do we apply a passage like this as 21st century Christians? And and in particularly, how do we apply a passage like this to 21st century Christians living in the United States of America? And the reason that this is important is because these are are, are things that Paul, uh, the the things that Paul is facing in this passage, right, that don't apply to us, emperor worship, for example, right, although we do see kind of cult-like and religious-like devotion as it relates to our presidents, but the, the reason the question is important is because we need to behave in such a way that honors God. Uh, we need to behave in our interaction with the government in such a way that it honors the Lord. And so if you're taking notes, the very first thing that I have you jot down is we need to see that governing authority is from God. Governing authority is from God. The first couple of verses here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, one of the things that I want us to see in this passage is that this cuts both ways. As Christians, we are to be humble in our view of governing authorities, knowing that God himself has ordained them. We subject ourselves to them as worship unto the Lord. But there's also a limit inherit in this passage as well. As far as earthly powers go, there's no such thing as absolute power. As far as earthly powers go, There's no such thing as absolute power. Paul says that there's no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Now now think about this for a moment, because this is is one of those provocative moments that that I spoke about just a minute ago. Paul is writing in the midst of a culture where emperor worship is demanded. Okay, that's the setting in which the Apostle Paul has written this. And and he's saying rather audaciously that these emperors who demand worship have no inherent authority. None. The, the, The authority that they have has been given to them by God. Right? This means by nature that they're accountable to God because how they govern is of eternal significance to the Lord who put them there. Whether or not they acknowledge it or not, they are in fact governing in his name, on his behalf, for his glory. Again, regardless of their mission of it, regardless of their knowledge, their authority is a vested authority. This would have been treasonous in in Roman culture to to say such things. Yet Paul reminds the Roman church of the one, right, the one who has all authority. And, And when we remember such things, when we keep in mind of the one, Christ Jesus, who has all authority, that's the very thing that keeps us from despair. 
It's the very thing that kept these Christians that he was writing to who were being murdered for their commitment to Christ Jesus and their refusal to worship the emperor. It's what kept them from despair, that Christ is above all earthly powers. Christ has all authority. Right? Only the creator of the cosmos has all authority. In fact, it was Jesus who said before he gave a commission to the disciples in which they were, to, they were called to be a public witness, an ambassador of Christ Jesus in every corner of the earth. It was Christ that said that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, right? It was Paul who we read last week toward the end of the sermon in Philippians chapter 2 that said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that he alone is Lord, Right? This, this includes all those emperors that murdered Christians. This includes all those emperors who demanded worship. This includes perhaps the, the most wicked emperor, I think, that historians would say that ever lived, which was Nero, who would often have Christians tied to a stake and set on fire so that he could have light for his garden and so that he could get a kick out of it. It includes someone as wicked as Nero. That at the name of Jesus, when, when all things are said and done, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, that Jesus Christ alone is worthy to be worshipped. Abraham Kuyper, he is a prime minister in the Netherlands in, in the early 1900s and, and the, the founder of Free Amsterdam University and the, the founder of a particular denomination, church denomination in the Netherlands says that there's not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's no inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We saw Paul quote this in our text last week, but Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he, for the Lord, has founded it upon the seas and he's established it upon the rivers. Right? And that's not just some poetic passage of Scripture that sounds great when we're all gathered. Right? This is the cry of the believer, that this earth belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord, and that necessitates a particular way of life and, and a particular heart orientation toward God and toward other people. Right? There's nothing in all of creation that's off limits to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. There's no person, no matter how powerful on earth, that will not give an account to Christ for how they live and for how they governed. Therefore, governing authorities are are to serve mindful that their authority comes from God. And we as Christians should also be mindful that God has granted authority to earthly powers and that for us to resist them is to resist God himself. And to resist God means, according to Paul, to incur judgment, to incur God's wrath. Now, this warning for us as Christians, and for the believers that were seeing these words from the Apostle Paul, it requires, by God's grace, precision in how we handle the text. It required precision in how 
these instructions were to be received to those in the Roman Empire, and it requires precision for how it is to be received 2,000 plus years removed from that in the United States of America. So we need to wrestle here, genuinely wrestle with two questions. First, the question when we read a text like this, and hopefully we're, we're in the habit of asking questions when we read the Scripture. Well, one question we need to ask is, in the U.S., who is our governing authority? In the United States, who is our governing authority? And then secondly, we need to ask the question, are we to submit absolutely? Are we to submit absolutely? And so in the U.S., who is our governing authority? And number two, are we to submit absolutely? Now, as it relates to governing authorities, we know, right, in any sort of civics class, we would learn that there's all different types of government systems, right? Democracies, republics, dictatorships, oligarchies, monarchies. Now, without spending an entire sermon defining the difference in governments, because this isn't a civics class, right? I want to spend a little bit of time defining the government structure of the United States of America, right? Because we live as citizens here, Here in the United States, we are a representative democracy. Our, Our government is elected by our citizens, and our country is made up of a union of 50 sovereign states, The Constitution of the United States established and it maintains this type of government. In fact, we all know that that government officials here in the States swear when they take office to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Many of them swear on a Bible, by the way. What does this mean mean for us? Why does this matter? This means that the United States of America is not ruled by emperors like those in Paul's context. Our president, our governor, our senators, congressmen and women, mayors, the, the, the whole nine yards do not rule over us. That's not the way that our government functions. The Supreme Court of the United States does not rule over us. In our country, the, the great experiment, as they call it, these men and women are required to serve the people by upholding the Constitution of the United States in the logistical decisions required in maintaining a free society. From this perspective, we should see that our governing authority truly is the Constitution drafted by we the people. It's the rule of law for this particular society. It's a document that's been drafted by citizens to ensure a free society. This means that that the citizens are responsible before God to uphold it. And those serving in the public sphere, sphere are responsible to uphold it and to protect it and to ensure that the citizens are operating accordingly. Right? Upholding it is the, the solemn duty of those in office. Now, now why does this matter? It matters because Romans 13 matters. We need to ensure that we're honoring the Lord in our application of Romans chapter 13 because God spoke the words of it through Paul. And if I'm expected to submit to the governing authority placed over me by God, and I am, then I better know who that governing authority is and how exactly that governing authority functions in society. Now, 
What of our submission? Is our submission to be absolute? Is our submission to be absolute? Now, this is another area that we have to get right because rebellion to the governing documents of our society is serious business. But, but let's look back to Paul for a moment because I think that they may help us see more clearly. And in looking at Paul, I want to ask this question. In, in Paul's society, right, the, the emperor demanded worship. Right? He, he demanded to be treated as a deity. Right? Did Paul treat the emperor in this way? Right? We, we should already see from what we've covered already that the answer is no. But look with me even at Paul preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17. You can flip over there quickly, starting with verse 22, and I'm going to go to verse 31. Starting with verse 22, we see this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. He's addressing philosophers here. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. But then, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands, get this, all people everywhere to repent because, significant, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In in a passage like this, in this particular passage, we see Paul in Athens, which in that day was kind of considered the, the learning hub for Greek and, and Romans. Um, and we see him here publicly defending God's authority over man. Right, in verse 24, and if, you, if you're looking at it with me, and I would encourage you to do so, but in verse 24 we see that he says that God made the world and everything in it. All right, we see in verse 25 that this God is self-sufficient, right? He doesn't have needs, nor does he derive his authority from anyone. We talked about this briefly in our Exodus series, the aseity of God or the self-sufficiency of God when Moses was commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and say, you need to, you need to let these slaves go, right? These are God's people, In verse 26, we see that he's sovereign. We see in verse 27 
that he's knowable. We see in verse 28 that he's our sustenance. In verse 29, we see that he's not like man. In verse 30, we see that he commands repentance from sin from all men. In verse 31, we see that there's a day fixed in which he will rightly judge the world in righteousness through Christ Jesus, right? And then in verse 31, it brings even more clarity. We do see him doing this through Christ whom he raised by the power of the Spirit of God from the dead, And this harmonizes, a passage like this harmonizes really well with Paul saying in our passage in Romans 13 that the authority of even these emperors during this time is a vested authority given to them by God. Just from a brief survey like this, we should see that absolute obedience is not the obligation of God's people. Rather, Fearing God is the obligation of God's people. Fearing God is the obligation of God's people. And fearing God helps us to strike the biblical balance as it relates to the government. Right? Now, now, should we resist the governing authorities just because we feel like it? Absolutely not. That's sinful. Right? A, a sort of rebellion because nobody's going to tell me what to do really is sinful and wrong. All right, and those of us with rebellious tendencies should be mindful of our disposition and ask for the Lord, uh, ask to the Lord for grace in honoring Him as it relates to the various authorities that are put in our life. All right, on the other side, those of us with submissive tendencies need to be mindful that our submissiveness is to God, not to man. We're not to fear man. The fear of man should not be the motivator behind rebellion, and the fear of man should not be the motivator behind submissiveness. The very first commandment in the second table of the law in the Ten Commandments says, honor thy mother and thy father. And our society has various mothers and fathers. Certainly, we see how this should be applied in our home with literal mothers and fathers, but we even see this, for instance, God's government in the church, elders and pastors as those who should be honored, First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. And here in our passage in Romans 13, we see that honor should be given to the governing authority, and just by the way our society functions, those whom are called by God to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And submission isn't just required here, but we should pray for their welfare. Our confession says here in in chapter 24, paragraph 3, says civil magistrates being set up by God for the the, the ends that were mentioned, um, subjection and all lawful things commanded by them, ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. And we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. All right, so the first thing we need to see is that um, the governing authorities have vested authority. They've been placed there by God, and, and that has certain implications for us as Christians in the way that we interact uh, with those uh, who, for in our context, are servants to that authority, and um, and then it also has a um, 
uh, a, a warning, a reminder, if you will, that, that uh, those that have been placed in public office don't have absolute authority. Right? The second thing we need to see is that the, the governing authority is God's servant in order to promote morality according to God's standards. The governing authority is God's servant in order to promote morality according to God's standards. Verses 3 on down to verse 5. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. Right? Good and bad on whose authority, right? Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This, this passage helps us to, to answer the question, what is the role of those who govern? What is the role of those who govern? Right? Biblically speaking, it's simple to promote morality, to promote morality, right? This, this vested authority should promote morality by punishing evildoers. That's what we see here in the text. And I would have you note that this is a, a very narrow role. It's, it's not expansive. And Paul wrote this in a day and age when the role of the emperor was vast. Again, pay attention to the context he's writing in. He's writing in a day and age where the emperor has assumed all power and all right to do whatever he wants. Yet Paul here is limiting even the emperor when he says rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Then on down in verse 4, he says uh, that the, the governing authorities don't bear, God's servant doesn't bear uh, the sword in vain. He's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And again, look with me at verse 4. Because Paul uses the phrase, God's servant, servant of God. God's servant and servant of God, right? The Greek word behind that word, servant, is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. In the midst of a culture in which the emperor sees himself as a god, Paul calls him theos diakonos, which is God's servant. He's God's servant. How humbling is that? How humbling is that? And for our purposes, we could, and I would argue, should apply a passage like this in this way. Those in a position here in the United States are deacons of God through their upholding of the Constitution drafted by the citizens of this represented, representative democracy. And as a church, we should not only pray for this to be the case, but we should labor to remind those in our government of this just as Paul did through his instructions to the Roman citizens. In a way, we see this sort of New Testament application of the Old Testament, of particularly Psalm 2, in which the psalmist speaks to the kings of raging nations when he says in verses 10 to 12, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
And, and behind this isn't a threat with any sort of material weapons. This is an evangelistic call to bow a knee to the God to whom all men must give an account. Right? You see, the unloving thing for us to do as Christians is to sinfully live in rebellion as if we're not giving an account to the God of the cosmos who has all authority. And another unloving thing to do is to allow those in a governing positions to govern and speak in such a way as if they're not going to give an account to the God of the cosmos. We should, in love, want to see presidents and governors and senators and congressmen and women and mayors and city councils and those in law enforcement. The list should go on and on and on. We should want to see them reconciled to God, and we should want to see them serve in such a way that acknowledges the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as citizens, Christian citizens, we should labor for their good. The outworking of them being reconciled to God is their living and working in such a way that acknowledges that they, in fact, will give an account for their labors just as we will for ours. They should, like us, want to give an account as one who's in Christ Jesus. They should want to give an account to God as one outside of Christ Jesus, and we should want them, as people that are called to be ambassadors for Christ above all things, we should want them to be judged as one that is in Christ, as, as a person in Christ, as a person covered in the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. We should want everybody that, that's serving in the public sphere to, to be judged in righteousness, covered in the righteous blood of Christ. Again, go back to Acts 17, verse 31 for a second. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. There's this all-encompassing nature to his judgment. He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? You want to know that you'll give an account to Christ Jesus? Look to the bodily and eternal resurrection. We will give an account, Paul says, because Christ rose from the dead. So, so as people who, are, who, who should be living in subjection to the God of the cosmos, and as people who should want those who are in, in governing sort of situations to do the same, right? how, how, how can we do that? can do it by seeking to uphold God's glorious standards. As the nations rage, the psalmist says, again, Psalm 2, as the nations rage, kiss the sun, is what the psalmist says to the king. Pledge allegiance to, not the flag, pledge allegiance to the sun. Kiss the sun. Right? Serve the Lord with fear. Therefore, we're to serve the Lord with fear in how we submit. And and those in the public sphere are to fear the Lord in how they promote morality. And as a side note, and and this should harmonize with, with the last two weeks for us, but what kind of morality are they to promote? Right? Who is the one that determines what's moral? Right? Certainly, it's, it's not a government that has 
sanction the execution of millions of children in the womb. It's God. It's the God who says, thou shalt not murder. And the church, through her own repentance and in courage and in steadfast loving kindness, indicative of the Lord, should be the conscience of the culture as she stays tethered to the sufficient word of God. In humility, we should call not on our own authority, right? And we need to hear that well. We should call not on our own authority. We should call what is righteous, unashamedly righteous. And we should call not on our own authority, what is sinful, unashamedly sinful. And and we should promote in our homes and in our church and in our society the Lordship of Jesus Christ who determines what what morality actually is. Again, this faith entrusted to us is public. It's not private. As we pronounce the Lordship of Christ, we need to do so, and we need to do so orderly, understanding that God has established society with laws that govern that society for the good of its citizens and for his own good glory. And so we are to be Christians that aren't just holding our convictions to ourselves. And I don't mean your preferences, right? We go all over the place with our preferences that are untethered to the Scripture. I'm talking about what we know to be true, not because of how we feel, but what we know to be true based on what we see in Scripture. We're to be anchored to that, and we're to live as Christians both privately and publicly. There's private and public commitments that are placed on us by God. It's the very nature of being an ambassador, right? We're representing Christ who's ascended to the right hand of the Father as all authority. And then the last bit that we see here, is a worker is worthy of his wages. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Right? That's the, that's the part of the passage everybody wants me to leave out. All right. <clears throat> but even aside from the taxes... Part, right when I see this and I see things like respect and I see things like honor, we don't do that well. And I'm, and I'm not even talking about the, our broader culture, but as Christians, we don't do that well. Right? We, and we certainly don't do that well in our disagreements. Respect and honor goes a long way even when you're disagreeing with an individual about something. The Apostle Paul, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue, revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Right, now, my aim isn't to speak to any sort of over-taxation or the founder's intent behind taxation or constitutional limits on taxation, I I think it's all worthwhile to look at that stuff and be informed and study those things. But here what we need to see is is something that I I even mentioned briefly two weeks ago when I spoke about the law of God. What we see the Apostle Paul doing here is applying the what theologians have called the general equity of the moral principle. 
of a, a civil law as it relates to how we as Christians interact with those in public service. Right? The, the moral principle of the civil law here would be found in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Right? That's another way of saying don't steal. We see Paul do the same thing when he writes to Timothy about those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.18. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. For the scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. That's not that hard to understand, right? I think, what, what does some sort of agrarian way of farming have to do with anything? All right. But you shall not muzzle an ox was a, was a civil law, a civil code, if you will, in the theocracy of Israel. Again, we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago. But the moral principle that we can take from that, that's enduring, that's binding on us, is don't steal. Right? The labor deserves his wages, as Paul interprets it. Right? The idea is that if the Lord cares about uh, the welfare of an animal that's providing farm labor... How much more does he care about the livelihood of those created in the image of God? All right now, now, we need to read and pray for a couple of things, and, and this is by no means exhaustive, but just two things that I've been reflecting on as I've been working through this text this week. The first is this. We should be praying that the Holy Spirit of God would convict our conscience in something even as it's related to the paying of taxes. This, for us, is an issue of obedience. Again, I'm not getting into all the the nuances of it here this morning, but we should have a biblical perspective on the paying of our taxes. And then secondly, we should pray that the one who's benefiting from the taxes, and we should pray for the one that's benefiting from the taxes, that he or she would be convicted by the Holy Spirit to, to work A, hard for it, and to work B, righteously for it. To work hard for it and to work righteously for it. When Paul, Paul says, he says, pay what is owed, taxes and revenue, right? When he says that, he's saying to those paying taxes, pay them. And he's saying to the public servant, work hard and righteously for them. Right? Both parties, again, both parties are going to give an account to the Lord. Right? And the same sort of thing is applied to respect and honor. We're to be respectful of God's servants and we're to honor God's servants in the same way that we're to pay taxes and revenue to them for their service. Right? We don't have to busy ourselves with determining if they're worthy of our taxes, if they're worthy of our honor and respect. Right? And again, honor and respect doesn't mean blind obedience. But for the public servant, he or she should be concerned with their work ethic, should be concerned with their integrity. They should be concerned about being respectable and honorable servants, and not servants just to society, but servants ultimately to God. Right? It's their duty to be above board in how they serve the public. Because again, whether they acknowledge it or not, they're serving before the face of God, and they're going to give an accounting to him for deeds done in the dark and for deeds done in the light. Our God is, is, is he's a God of justice, right? And he doesn't change that standard. That, didn't, that doesn't shift in him. Now, now how, how, how can we all be helped? 
How can we all be helped? How can the public servants be helped? And how can we as Christians living in the public sphere be helped in our seeking to honor the Lord and promote the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And this is where I'm going to give you the takeaways that are in your worship, God. First is this. Christians should be model citizens by obeying righteous laws. Christians should be model citizens by obeying righteous laws, by praying for the welfare of our country, and by respecting and honoring authority. Respecting and honoring authority. Secondly, we, we should know and we should remember that the Scripture is sufficient to transform the lives of citizens and public servants and to guide them both in their duties before God. The Scripture is sufficient to transform the lives of citizens and public servants and to guide them both in their duties before God. Third, <clears throat> the Christian faith is never to be privatized. While the church and state are by God's grace separate, Christ is the Lord over both spheres of authority. Therefore, the church should humbly by God's grace be the conscience of society by modeling repentance and heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, not to even mention the example we have of this with John the Baptist as it related to Herod and his, um, uh, his love life. It got his head chopped off, if you didn't know. Um, It's a good way to end the morning, isn't it? And he got his head chopped off. Let's close in prayer. Um, And then fourth, we should diligently pray for those in public office. We should pray for their salvation, and we should pray for their sanctification. We should also pray that they serve according to God's fixed standards, not their own guttural reactions. Right, so we should pray for those in public office, their salvation and sanctification. And we should pray that they serve according to God's fixed standards, not their own guttural reactions. And so why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we thank you again for this morning, God. We thank you for a text, God, that admittedly is, uh, can be hard, Lord, and... Uh, And so, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply this appropriately. God, I pray that any, for me, areas where my speaking was unclear, God, that you would bring clarity to the thoughts of my brothers and sisters here this morning. And God, I pray that you would help us, public servants and citizens, to live before the face of God. And Lord, we do pray for our country and we pray for those that you've put in office. God, we pray for their salvation. We pray for the renewal of their minds. And we pray, God, that your word would be the standard by which morality is promoted in our culture. Because what is at stake is clarity regarding good and evil. And when that's at stake, Lord, people can be deceived by sin and happy on their way to hell. 
So, Lord, help us again to have discernment. Help us to be tethered to your word. Help us to be men and women of courage, God, and help us to fear you above all things. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord, our King, and our Savior. Amen.